Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 21. On this episode, you'll get to hear from Randy Hester of CL Buto Winery. Plus, I've got Texas wine country travel tips and all the latest news about the Texas wine industry. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. So let's get the bad news out of the way first. I've just gotten word that an intense hailstorm hit Tony and Madonna Phillips's vineyard, called Phillips Vineyard, in Brownfield last night on May the 3rd. They've got 20 acres out in Terry County in West Texas, and just a few weeks ago they were fighting off the freezing temperatures with overnight fires in the vineyard. Now hail has decimated their vineyard. I was just talking with Seth Urbanic of Wedding Oak Winery, who told me that the Phillips Vineyard has been completely obliterated by the hail. Our hearts go out to Tony and Madonna and to others who may have experienced damage. And we've talked a lot about the major winter storm in February, but the April 20th and 21st freeze was the latest weather event ever to impact Texas vineyards. That's right, it was the latest recorded freeze on record. Until this year, The date of the latest freeze recorded was a tie, April 13, 1957, the temperature dropped to 30 degrees, and on April 13, 1997, temperatures went to 32. But in the early morning hours of April 21, 2021, temperatures north and west of Dallas-Fort Worth Airport hit lows between 26 and 33 degrees. Both North Texas and the Texas High Plains were impacted. Now, in spite of these challenges, you may still want to own a vineyard, and if I got a deal for you, Barnhill Vineyards and Winery in Anna, Texas is for sale. It's located about 40 miles north of Dallas, north of Plano and McKinney, and it's a 40-acre property that includes a fully functioning and profitable winery, a fenced-in pasture for cattle and horses, a beautiful tasting room housed in a wooden barn, and a 3,000-square-foot residence with a stone exterior. The owners are ready to move back home to care for their aging parents. Barnhill Vineyard and Winery can be yours for a cool $3.85 million. I'll link to the listing in case you're interested. Tickets are available now to the Wine and Food Foundation's Toast of Texas, a celebration of Texas wine. This is an annual in-person event, and it will be held on Sunday, June 13th from 2 to 4.30 in the afternoon at Stonehouse Villa in Driftwood. This event supports Texas's wine industry and celebrates our local Texas winemakers. There will be great wine, Texas barbecue, and live music, plus a killer silent auction. This event has limited registration, so get your tickets early. There are a dozen or so participating wineries, including C.L. Buto, whose winemaker and owner you're about to hear from. Also, Paternalis, Bending Branch, Ron Yates, Spicewood, High Meadow, Yano, and more. I will be there, and I'd love to see you. Tickets are $65 for members and $80 for non-members. Find the link in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. Wine Spectator has a new article called Top-Notch Restaurants Celebrating Local Wine. 
Lubbock's Pecan Grill at the Overton Hotel and Conference Center is included in the article. It says Pecan Grill has inexpensive pricing and that the wine list gives guests a helping hand by providing label images, winery overviews, and tasting notes. Congrats to Pecan Grill wine director Sheena Teal. And this is exciting. Callacy Cellars has broken ground on a 10,000-square-foot production facility right there at the tasting room site on the edge of Fredericksburg. Nikila Nara Davis and Greg Davis say that the facility will be completed by harvest time. Grapes for Calisi are grown at the Nara Vineyard in the High Plains. After completion, Calisi will be one of the few wineries in Texas growing 100% of their own fruit and processing all the fruit for the winery in-house. Here's some travel news you can use. The Texas Hill Country has been featured in a national print magazine again this month. Food and Wines article... The Five Best Wine Road Trips in the U.S. features the Texas Hill Country. Jessica Dufuy wrote the section on Texas. She stayed at Camp Lucy in Dripping Springs, and she visited Ron Yates, Sandy Road Vineyards, William Chris, Abastris, Pedernales, and Southhold. She has some recommended wines that you should try. I'll link to the article in the show notes or pick up food and wine on the newsstand. A new article in Texas Monthly has a similar focus, but considers wineries from a wider geographic area. Veronica Muse's article is Eight Wineries That Do Texas Spring Right. It mentions Farmhouse with locations in Johnson City and Brownwood, Lost Oak Winery in Burleson, Southhold outside of Fredericksburg, Texas Heritage Vineyard in Fredericksburg, Carter Creek Winery in Johnson City, Rising Sun Vineyard in McDade, which is in the Gulf Coast area, Hack Winery in Santa Fe, and finally Coleman in Stonewall. And the last bit of travel news is from Emma Balter in the Houston Chronicle. Her article, Your Ultimate Guide to the Best of Texas Wine Country, encourages those looking for adventure closer to home this summer to consider the Texas Hill Country. She says the wine region is large, but the 55-mile stretch of U.S. 290 between Dripping Springs and Fredericksburg is where the action is. Specifically, she calls out seven wineries, Abastris, Becker, Lewis, Lost Straw, Southhold, West Cave, and William Chris. She also makes note of four restaurants to visit, Emma and Ollie, High Market, Johnson City Coffee Company, and Otto's. A visit to the wine bar in Johnson City called The Parlor is also on her list. That's a Southhold project. And finally, Hoffman House, which is the gorgeous inn in Fredericksburg, is where she recommends staying. Any one of these articles would be a great start for planning your summer road trip. And that's the Texas Wine News. It's my pleasure to have recorded the following discussion with Randy Hester. Randy is the owner and winemaker of C.L. Buteau and Papa Frenchie. He and his wife, Brooke, live in Austin and recently opened a tasting room there. I've had the opportunity to write about Randy's journey and review his wines, and I saw firsthand how he can work a room when I attended a C.L. Buteau wine dinner in Fort Worth in 2019. Randy and I cover a lot of ground, and I know you'll find him as interesting as I do. Here's Randy. Hey, Randy, thanks for joining me today for a little chat about your history in wine and about C.L. Buteau and all you have going on in Texas wine. Of course. No, thank you for having me. 
I know that you've been in the news quite a bit lately for your new tasting room out in West Austin. And I definitely want to talk about that. But let's go back and talk about kind of where you're from and where you've been and and how you got back. Yeah, sure, sure. I'll take it way back. And and my my degree is in psychology and my minor is philosophy. So uh, I'm completely useless at this point with regards to my education. But, um, you know, during and after undergrad, uh, I was a therapist in a mental health hospital for adolescents. It was a private hospital. Um, I was um, I, I, I have some some uh, graduate work in, but uh, I, I needed to go all the way. I wanted to do private practice and I wanted to work on the children and I wanted a partner who could work on the adults. And working at the private hospital, when the insurance ran out, the psychiatrist, you know, basically would sign the kids out and they'd go whether we were done with them or not. And I became disheartened with that. I slowed down in in my schoolwork and anyway, ended up floundering around, getting back into retail and restaurants. And um, eventually I went to work uh, at a large distributor in the fine wines division. And that's really when it started to, to come together in my head that although I, I wanted to create and I wanted a creative outlet and although I wasn't saving kids lives anymore I figured my creation can be my little contribution and so I thought well if I can create this thing that is on tables across the country uh, people are popping corks when they're having a good time when they're with friends when they're with family colleagues I want to enhance the times being had, and I can do that if I can create my own wines. And so in about 2004, um, made the decision to, to prepare to move to a wine country for education and experience. And by 2006, it became clear that we were going to move to Napa Valley. And uh, that's what we did in April of 2006, moved to the town of Napa. Um, I was a $12 an hour intern at, at Cape Bread Cellars. I was 36 years old and um, picked up, left everything that was familiar to me and moved to California. And, uh, you know, the household income took about a 50% cut, you know, between me and my wife. And uh, she's a CPA. She was the CFO of, of her wine company. So that helped a lot. But yeah, I was a $12 an hour intern at 36 years old. And at and, and then they hired me full time and, and I got a boost to $14 an hour. So crazy money there. And then, um, yeah. And then, yeah. So I was there for a couple of years, um, moved into Colt Cab. I, I, I uh, was, uh, had the opportunity to work at Colgan Cellars and then uh, Realm Cellars. And then my last employer was Andy Erickson. So, from the $12 an hour internship at Cake Bread to really the pinnacle of cult cab in, in, in this country, um, it, it was a great ride. But there was a 10-year plan. That it was a 10-year goal to learn the industry at a high level in order to bring it back to the home state, bring it back to Texas. And that's exactly what we did. In 2017, we, we, we made the move. We switched from 
my, my commute to making Texas wine was was getting on a plane in Oakland and getting off the getting off the plane in Lubbock and renting a car and visiting vineyards and making wine. And then in 17, that that changed. We moved to Austin. My commute is now a six hour drive from Austin to Lubbock to visit vineyards. And um, yeah, that, that gets us to the present day, I think. Can you say a little bit about lightning wines? I know you have a reputation as being somewhat of a Grenache whisperer. And I want to talk about how that translated into Texas wine, but let's start the story in California and Grenache. Yeah, sure. So in 2011, I started my personal brand. So, so I mentioned the, the 10-year goal. So moving to California, uh, I had a two-year, five-year, and 10-year. The two-year was um, be involved uh, in, in a great job. And so right around that time, I was between Cake Bread and Colgan. So, so two-year plan, check. Uh, the five-year plan was start my California brand. I thought I need, I, I need to start the California brand. I need to, to, to run a business, perform in that environment in Napa Valley. It's, it's uber competitive. Um, if I can run a wine business in, in, in Napa Valley, I, I can do it in Texas. And so at the five year, uh, at the, Let's see. That was in 2011. Yeah. So that's at the five-year mark. We started the uh, we started Lightning Wines, and by then I was in Colt Cab. I was I was way into Colt Cab, but I don't I don't drink Cab. I don't go to Cab. I don't just if you come over to my house, I'm not just going to pop a bottle of Cab. Um, for me, it's it's more about uh, Burgundies and Rhones. And uh, Priorats, and um, you know, I, I I'm I lean into Pinot Noir, I lean into Grenache, Gamay, Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais. You know, um, these are the kinds of wines that I drink. Plus, I know we 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 can't do Cab well here in Texas, so I'm again the ten year plan, the focus is on the Mediterranean varietal, the Mediterranean coastal varietals that we know uh, thrive here in our state. So Grenache fits, uh, fits that as well. So not only do I like to drink, you know, Chateauneuf de Pop, Giganda, Baccarat, even, even Cote de Rhone, uh, Priorat, all these Grenache-based wines, even though I like to to, to uh, I, or I like to drink these wines. Plus, I know these are similar to the wines that I'm going to be working with uh, when we get to the end of this 10-year goal and we head back home. I'm going to be working with some Rome varietals. So I, I went Grenache, and, and, and Grenache to me, from a cerebral standpoint, from, from just a, a stimulation standpoint, Grenache is really hard to make. It's 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 not an easy varietal to grow. It's not an easy varietal to produce. And but I didn't know that at the time. Um, my wife was the CFO of Patson Hall, which is a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producer, and they do single vineyard. They at the time they had, I want to say, seven different Pinots, seven different Shards. 
So I'm very familiar with the, the single vineyard, single varietal kind of offerings. And I thought, well, let's do this with Grenache. I, I had access to really uh, top-end growers all over Northern California. So that's what I started doing. Lightning Wines is, is based on uh, Grenache and Grenache-based blends. We did eight single, uh, single varietal, single vineyard Grenache wines. Uh, I did one Syrah. And then, um, and then I had a, a red blend that was Chateauneuf inspired. It was about eighty-five percent Grenache, with some Syrah, some Avedra, some Cunoise, and some Senso. Um, I almost forgot about Senso. And then I did one rosé. It was one hundred percent Grenache, and I did one white. And, and, and in my wines, and, and to this day, I make wines that I want to drink, and I find people that want to drink them with me. So the white wine, it, 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 it was a blend of Grenache Blanc, Picpoul, and Marsan. The rosé was 100% Grenache, and, and they're made in a style that, that I want to drink them. So that, that had been, that, that was a lot of fun. That was lightning wines, Grenache, Grenache-based blends. And uh, folks, yeah, folks visit us from all over the country. We have wine club members from all over the country because of my Lightning Wines production, because of, you know, trying to, you said Grenache Whisperer, but just trying to, just trying to make great wines that are, that are, you know, that people want to drink. And now you've brought Grenache to your Texas portfolio, right? Yes, yes. Talk about the differences between um, the Grenache that you saw in California and what you're getting from your farming partners here. Yeah, well, the the main my main source of Grenache is is Rob Warren, Desert Willow Vineyard, um, Seminole, Texas, about an hour and a half southwest of Lubbock. Rob, I've been in I've been in touch with Rob since he planted these vines. He's got he's got five acres of Grenache. He's got five acres of Mavedra, but. He's a top-end uh, organic cotton farmer, and this is this is ten acres of something fun for Rob to do. Rob is the kind of guy who doesn't really sit still. Uh, Rob's feet are always moving, and he and I, I think there's there there are many similarities between he and I, and and I think that's that's why we work so well together. He wants this 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 vineyard isn't a, a business thing for him. It's a hobby thing for him, and he wants to do this better than anybody else. And 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 he does a fantastic job. He's he's listening to the vines. He's listening to my education and experiences, and and he's he's paying attention to the end product. Um, he's not just a commodities farmer who's trying to get a market price at the end of the year. He, he is a partner in this with me in that our end goal is to put great Grenache on the table, uh, to put great Mouvedre on the table, and, and he's involved in that process. He's involved in, in like, you know, hey, how's fermentation going? Hey, how's aging going? Hey, how's the bottling process going? Hey, how's the wine club release going? Hey, how's the wine drinking? Hey, what's next? You know, he's he he's he's asking things and he wants to be involved in things that involve our end consumer. And that's the big difference. Um, the Grenache itself as a varietal 
it's it's acting pretty similarly. Um, my Texas Grenache is very similar to the um, to the lightest of all of my California Grenaches. Um, in California, having all of these different sites, so eight different um, eight different vineyards in eight different counties. If you know, if you can imagine different counties all over like say just the Lubbock area just the central Texas area north Texas area just think about the eight surrounding counties around you and then I had Grenache coming from all of those and what I did was theoretically um, what is the what is the history of of winemaking behind the Grenache varietal and so when I come when in my mind uh, I start thinking of of old European technique, I think of the the history of winemaking, how winemaking evolves, and all the time getting better and better and better. But but where did that come from? And and so I committed to one process over those eight different vineyard sites. Um, I do basically the same process for my Texas Mouvedre, for my Texas Grenache, and so I really do get to compare. It's it's kind of apples to apples. Um, you know, I use the example in the winery a lot. If if I have five different green apple varietals and five different red apple varietals, now we have 10 different types of apples, but we have one recipe to make them with. Um, that's a little bit of what I do with Grenache. No matter where it comes from, I treat it with the same recipe. And varietally, we know it's going to give us bright, crunchy red fruits like raspberry, pomegranate, cranberry, and it's going to give us a spice, uh, black pepper, white pepper, and then uh, go into like fall, winter baking spices. So we know varietally that's what Grenache is going to give us. If I treat it with my one theory based on the history of European winemaking, then um, I can see that it acts on the lighter side of all the different Grenaches that I've ever worked with. And when you say lighter side, are you talking about color or phenolics or both? A little bit of both. So the vines are young. This harvest will be the sixth leaf on these vines. And so the vines are still young. And Grenache, Grenache takes longer than other varietals anyway. So um, a nice, uh, nice Mouvedre. The Mouvedre coming out of Rob's place is more... They were planted at the same time, and they've been treated basically the same. And so, um, but the Mouvedre as a as a plant is more established than the Grenache. The, uh, uh, most varietals are by year five, they are starting to hit their stride. By year four, you can kind of start saying maybe we can use this. Um, year three, two, one, that fruit uh, should be dropped and not used. And that, that those nutrients and energy should be put into the, the plant and the root, uh, not the fruit. But yeah, by year five, we start to see something. With Grenache, I'm gonna, it's going to be about, say, year eight. So by year seven, eight, we're really going to start to see maturity on these Grenache vines. So the, the vines are younger. They are producing a lighter color. Um, but the cool thing about it, so the, the color is lighter, uh, and the tannins are a little, 
The tannins are definitely there. The tannins are a little uh, prickly early on. They need some some aging early on. I mean, they're they're teenagers, right? So they need like they need a little bit of coaxing. They're still a little rough around the edges, but uh, but the end product. So I'll 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 bottle early uh, by say ten months or so to to capture the freshness of the fruit. But I'll hold that and bottle for a longer period to give those tannins time to settle in. It's lighter in color, but the the mouthfeel is still a big round sort of um, plush in the mouth, and then and then the complexity of the varietal still shows. You still get uh, a wine that that has some depth that ha- that is very interesting as it opens up. It's very aromatic, so um, a, a darker, a bigger slash darker Grenache is going to be darker flavors it's going to be it's going to show more of the winter baking spice and less of the the raspberry cranberry component but the the the, what we've got coming out of rob's place right now is just is pretty it's it's very pretty in that way i've heard that grenache is a little bit difficult to manage in the vineyard maybe disease prone or because of the thin skin it's just prone to um trouble in the vineyard have you experienced that in Texas or um, do you well, agree with that statement? You know, Grenache. So if, if, if somebody says, if somebody says, if you come to me right now and you say, you say, Randy, I, I love your Grenache. I love what you did with it in California. I love what you're doing with it here. I'd love to plant Grenache. Can you help me with that? And the first help I would give you is to tell you not to plant Grenache. Um, Grenache is, it's, it's hard to deal with as a grower, I would say more because it wants to give you so much fruit. Um, there's a winemaker here in Texas who assured me that I would never be able to make Grenache here in Texas. And um, he was very confident that it would only ever make rosé. And he has a lot of time in doing just that. After a few years of, of trying to understand why that is, um, I, came, I, I came to see that, that it's because Grenache here is always overcropped. Grenache wants to give you 10, 12, 15 tons to the acre. It wants to just put a bunch of fruit out, but that fruit is watered down. There's no flavor to that fruit. There's no color to that fruit. It's just basically a filler, and and in that regard, he was right. That is decent, okay fruit to make a rosé from. Um, some of the higher-end Spanish Grenache, they crop that at about half a ton. On the high-end Grenache in, in Spain, it's half a ton to a ton per acre. So what's the sweet spot for Texas? Uh, we don't know yet. I know the sweet spot for, for the growers that I was with in California was about two and a half to three tons. And so, uh, and that's, that's what Rob works with for me is, is he's, he's dedicated to that three tons per acre. And that's the only reason that I can make 
the red wine that I can make with his fruit at, 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 at the young vine age is because he, he maintains the crop load at a much lower level than um, really than anybody else that I've seen. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about your winemaking style. And I want you to kind of tell me your philosophy and also getting a little bit into winemakers don't like the term natural wine. You can call it sustainable. You can call it non-interventional. Tell me your style. All of those, all of those things. You know, I tell people I was natural before natural was cool. Um, You know, 2007 was the first wine I made on my own. It was a Syrah and... The theory of the wines, the theory behind the wines that I love to drink is hands-off, native ferments, whole clusters. Um, You know, I like wines of Burgundy. I like wines of Rhone. I like wines of Beaujolais. Um, It's always made sense to me. There's there's really, I, I could lecture about, you know, oh, the the history of wine and all this stuff, but but really it boils down to everything we need is available already to us, whether that's, uh, you know, the plant, the tannin, the color, the aroma, it all happens within that vine. It, and, and, and what I wanted to go back and figure out was what happens chemically and when does that happen? So when in the cycle, in the, in the annual growing season, when, does, uh, when do the berries form? When, when, when we can see that. We can see that with our eyes. We know they go from flowers to berries to grapes. They start to accumulate sugar and color. We know that. But what's happening inside? The, the leaves are accumulating. The leaves closer to the fruit accumulate chemicals that leaves higher in the canopy don't accumulate. And at a certain point, they inject different things into the fruit. Um, I want to know what happens chemically and when does that happen. And and we talk about leaf thinning. We talk about maintaining a canopy with too much green leafy material. Um, You're going to get too much green leafy flavor and and aroma. And so you you have to worry about all these things. Once I find the farmers who want to work with me on these things, modern, just basic modern viticulture, once I get that to the winery, it's the same thing. Um, at, at, at lower temperatures, um, if I can hold off fermentation for several days at a, just simply by lowering the temperature of the room, um, and that, that's keep trying to keep the fruit at under about 52 degrees, so a 45-degree room will, will cool that down. Um, that way, no, no bacterial growth no yeast growing, no, no fermentation starting. Um, it's like steeping when you're making tea. It's like steeping, you're, you're pulling flavor, you're pulling aroma, but you're not pulling past that part where your tea gets too tannic, your tea gets too bitter. Um, and so that I can do naturally. It's naturally occurring. I can just simply cool the fruit down and get it to where I can get more aroma out of it. I can get more flavor out of it. Um, I utilize whole clusters. Thirty um, percent uh, is pretty minimal for me on on Rome varietals. Uh, I do about thirty percent whole cluster on my Tempranillo. Um, I have wines that have been a hundred percent whole cluster, 
And, and that's a lot of plant material, but it's the right plant material. It's not the leaves that have been beat up from a, from a mechanical harvester. harvester. It's not the leaves and the, the sticks and all that. It's, it's the actual rachis of the grape. It's the actual um, stems of the grapes. Um, so it's closer to, in plant material to the fruit than it is to the plant. Um, yeah, and then native yeast. So if, so if I take it out of that 45-degree room and simply allow oxygen to hit it, you know, our air that we breathe, and then the sun to warm it up, it, it will, it, the, the native, the, the indigenous yeast uh, will, will wake up and they'll start to convert. They'll start to convert that sugar to CO2, alcohol, and heat. And that's when we're off and running. So yeah, I, I, I do my whole, I, I could keep boring you with all this. And I, I know it's a lot of detail, but I, I, my whole process, I think this way. What do I have naturally here? And how can I utilize that? If I need more tannin, I can have more whole clusters. Um, the the tannin's going to come from that plant material from those um, from the grape uh, stems, the clusters themselves. Um, I can utilize extended maceration. So once my all, all of my wines are are dry, I ferment everything I have to to dry, so there's no sugar. Um, but at that point, some, especially red wines, become candidates for extended maceration. So that's, again, a different type of steeping. We're trying to, uh, that's more about the tannic structure when I'm starting to look at extended maceration. But So let me ask you this. Yeah. Cold soak is what happens prior to fermentation, and it's lowering the temperature on what you get for several days if you do it in an extended way. Extended maceration happens after fermentation? Extended. So so think of it like I'm extending this past fermentation. Okay. Yeah, so, so you're leaving the stems and the skins on the juice correct. for a while after fermentation to continue to, to manage your tannins? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So think of during the red wine process, we have the all of the solids are in there, the skins, the pulp, the seeds. Uh, it's all in there. That stays in there for the life of that fermentation. And every day of that fermentation, we agitate that solution three times, whether that's by punch down or pump over. Um, we're going to take uh, the CO2 that's, that's, being, uh, that's being converted is lifting the solids to the top of the tank or vessel. We need to put those solids back down into that, that liquid solution. And so you can do that either by taking the liquid from the bottom and, and spraying it over the top, or you can uh, literally use a device to punch down through the solids to get the, the liquid below to come up. And so you do that three times a day because every time you're doing that, you... The more you do that, the more you get from those solids, whether that's color, aromatics, et cetera, et cetera, your wine. Um, the more you agitate it, the more you get from it. Now, let's say we get to the dry part of my fermentation, and I've done those three times a day. I've done my, my estimated 45 agitations on that, on that tank or whatever it is that I estimate that I need to do to make that you know, that great cup of tea. 
Now it could be a candidate for extended maceration beyond what we just went through. And so when it's sugar dry and you want to sort of slow the process down and extend that further, that's the point where you can call it extended, think of it as extended maceration. And that's a fragile state. Like that's, you're kind of playing with fire, both the cold soak at the beginning and the extended maceration at the end. Those, these are processes and and I play and and I do native yeast. So like I'm playing with fire all the way through. And so that so to go I don't I don't remember your exact original question, but to go back to the, the, the whole like new natural winemaking thing and everybody's like, oh, the grapes show up and, and I put them in a barn and I don't go visit them again till November and all that. Like to me, those people, the wines show that you can't you can't play with that kind of fire and really not know what you're doing. Um, it, it, it's, it's a daily, it's a daily visit. You're tasting the wines every day. You're smelling the wines every day because they can go sideways so fast on you. So, so what happens when you use a native yeast and you get into fermentation and you get what's called a stuck fermentation? So what does that mean exactly? And how do you manage it? Stuck fermentation means that, um, stuck fermentation means you've, you've, you've started fermenting and then for whatever, uh, for whatever reason you have in your solution, it's no longer um, viable for fermentation. So, so, so the yeast will stop. The yeast will die out. And I guess that could be you could have a too high of a temperature. You could have too high of an alcohol content. You could have too low of a nutrient content. So you don't have real food um to for the yeast to eat um let me think let me think you could just it could just be too cold um your ferment could be too hot and ferment could be too cold um i think those are the main reasons why a fermentation might stop and and those are all reasons why people get nervous about native yeast so when you say you're playing with fire by using them those are the primary reasons why native yeasts this is this is just what's occurring naturally in our solution these are not yeast that have been built up in a lab setting to for for better performance um a horse is a natural way for me to get down to heb uh but my z71 tahoe is 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 a is a is a faster and more guaranteed way for me to get down there and get my groceries. Uh, you know, the horse. We may have a problem with the horse, but we're not gonna have any problems with the Tahoe. So um, I, I don't know if, if that's a clear analogy, but yeah, the the native yeasts are not superheroes. They're 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 just they are what is naturally occurring in our environment. Whereas the yeast uh, that are cultivated in a lab, they come from, and I have no problem with cultivated yeast from a lab. Don't, don't get me wrong. I just think my, in theory, I love native. So, um, but yeah, yeast cultivated in a lab, if you can imagine, just like baking bread or making beer, or I'm sure there's thousands of different uses for different yeasts that come from labs, um, and there's nothing wrong with them. 
um, but they are made for that purpose. Uh, whereas a native, you know, indigenous can just get overwhelmed. Maybe, maybe, maybe I have a, I have a, a bin, maybe I have a fermentation going and somebody at the winery goes to do my pump over, but they didn't clean the pump from the tank that they were at before. And that tank that they were at before has a really strong yeast that they inoculated that tank with. Now, those superhero yeasts get inoculated into my native tank and they'll take over and they'll kill out my little, my little, my soft little hippie native yeast and, and, and they'll be battling and, and it won't, it won't be able to compete. Well, you um, know that that's happening. Oh, I mean, yeah. Cause everybody, you know, you're, you're in the height of harvest. I mean, things like that can happen. Sure. Sure. But if, if, um, if I've taken care of my that cold soak piece uh, that I that I talk about, not only are you accumulating uh, aroma, color, potential color, uh, you're accumulating oh mouthfeel. So there's a lot of positives to that. You're also accumulating yeast. The yeast are like they're getting ready. You know, they're getting ready. They're just they're at the party. They're on their first glass of wine. They're just like frothing at the mouth they're ready to get some air they're ready to get some heat and then the party's on so that's that's another positive of my cold soap process is that it helps strengthen the native yeast because yeah things happen sure yeah you can't it can't in a winery setting i mean it's not life or death right so it's not like we're going to kill somebody if we make a mistake on a punch down one day but um yeah, things can happen. Things can mix. But yeah, the, the going back to the stuck ferment, I don't have stuck ferments. Um, I I know the nutrient content of my of my wines. I send I during that cold soak once once my vessel once the the liquid in my vessel is homogenized. Uh, once I know the the grapes have already soaked out a little bit the the solution there is just one hole i send that out to the lab and i know exactly what my phenolics are i know exactly what my nutrient content coming from the vineyard is you know a couple of years back i had a problem where the uh nutrient content coming from my vineyard was about four times what i expected it to be and I had a, I had one wine, the first wine I brought in fermented in about 18 hours. And I wanted that to ferment in about 28 or 30 days. So yeah, that was, it was a white wine. It was crazy. So it was like four times the nutrient content. So when you have that, you, you could stall out your yeast just cause, just cause they can't handle it. You know, it's too much yeah. nutrient. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't have stuck ferments, but it's because I pay attention. I'm 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 there every single day. I taste everything every day. Probably, you know, there's many days where I taste a couple times a day. Um, but I don't have stuck fer. I could tell you about them because I've read about them, but I don't have them myself. Well, good. So you have a new place out in West Austin. Are you going to be doing, I haven't gotten a chance to visit yet, but are you going to be doing production there or is it strictly a tasting room? It's strictly a tasting room, but um, 
And I say that first because, you know, I just want to be clear to everybody. We make our wines at Slate Mill in Fredericksburg. You know, they are, um, their business model is for custom crush and and that allows a small producer like me who doesn't have all of that equipment yet to be able to make my wines and so um, that's their business model and that's what they're set up to do and and um, you know that's what, we'll, what that's what we'll keep doing but yeah I have a tasting room plus I have a couple of warehouse spaces that uh, that will be my production facility we will be preparing that for production and that I mean, you know, I, I guess I need a, a rich uncle to die or something, but um, you know, we're looking we're looking at like harvest of twenty two. I would hope that we can get some things going. Building a winery takes a while, you know. If if I were gonna build a winery, uh, if I were gonna start building a winery right now for harvest twenty one, it would be impossible to do it. We, we, there would be no way. So. I need to be in the next three or four months. I need to really get it together to be able to have a, a Harvest 22 winery. So I don't know. Things will really have to come together. But yeah, it's hospitality and it will be a winery. This will be, this is the long term of where we'll be making our wines. We'll be right there in South Austin. Well, you've already been productive during COVID. Tell me about your new tasting room. Sure. Yeah. So, um, Couple years back, I was I was real close to signing a lease on a on a pretty sweet warehouse in East Austin, and it just kind of little by little it, it didn't feel right with the landlord. Um, anyway, the day before we were going to sign the lease, I I just got a bad I got a weird feeling, so we we backed out. And I only mention all that to say we've been ready for this for a while. And that was that was 2 or 3 years ago. So we've been sitting, waiting, looking, waiting for the right opportunity. Um, you know, Slate Mill opened and invited us to come make our wines there. So that helps tremendously. There's there's no more stress on, you know, where are we going to make our wines? So that helped my search for how I'm going to open a tasting room. And last February, February of 20, pre, you know, Pre-COVID, COVID's across the pond, but it's just coming here. We don't know what's up. Uh, we heard that that this this space was going to be opening up. And we talked to them all spring, talked to them through the summer, uh, kind of negotiated a lease, you know, still not, not really knowing what COVID was going to bring for us. Um, we're ready to jump, but we don't know if we can. But our this space, the huge, the huge win on this space. Not only will we be able to make our wines there one day, but it's it's mostly outdoors. the The hospitality area outdoors is huge, and it's it's packed every weekend. But yeah, we took the we took the keys in September. We did a lot of cleaning. We did a November soft open. Um, where we had local accounts, wine club members, um, you know, friends and family come and, and come to the winery in November. And then by December, we, we opened the doors and, you know, we welcomed the public in and um, it's just been incredible. We've been, we've been back in Texas for four years and I haven't had a tasting room. You know, I had a tasting room in Napa and people would visit from all over the country and then they would go home. They'd go back to Chicago and New York and Miami, and and we wouldn't see them again for another year. And then, but 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 we knew every single wine club member that we had because they came to visit us. 
So we've been four years of growth here in Texas, accumulating customers, accumulating wine club members. And man, you know, you don't know them, especially during COVID times, you, you don't get face to face. And so, yeah, we opened in December and then folks just started pouring in, started, uh, you know, so we, so now we're meeting all of our, you know, all the people we haven't met over the last couple of years and we're meeting lots of new folks and it's been an absolute blast. Yeah. That's cool. I know that two, two neat things about your space. One is that you can also taste wines from Ray Wilson and her yes. brands, right? And then yeah. also your food truck situation. Tell me about that. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So, so Ray and I have, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're basically the, the two Austin winemaker people. So, you know, I, I knew when we were moving back here in 17, that, that, you know, I'd be looking for Ray and we'd be, you know, I'd be trying to figure it out, you know, to figure out what she's all about. And, uh, you know, luckily, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty similar beings and we end up being pretty good friends. And, uh, you know, we travel together. We, you know, we share rides to Lubbock and we share grape hauling trucks and we share vineyard sites and we share Airbnbs. And so, yeah, it was a pretty natural uh, progression to uh, to team up with Ray to come into the tasting room. So uh, that's been phenomenal. We are still very much two separate businesses. You know, we are CL Buto. She is Wine for the People. And then um, we share this space. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a two for one for sure. You know, we have flights of our wines and her wines and we have a shared flight and, you know, we each have our own wine clubs and uh, yeah, that's, that aspect of it has been phenomenal. And then cherry on top, you know, we get this food truck guy to come in, Barkley Stratton, Brucey, Barkley, um, his most recent day job was was Lenoir, but he's had he's had all these great experiences. He has this um, he's he has he's intuitive. You'll you'll you know what I mean. He's intuitive about his food, his flavors. It's crazy. He's not like this. Isn't you know? I went to you know CIA in New York and I learned how to do this. He's his flavor. His you go hey. This this and this and this combination is incredible, and and he's kind of like, well, well, yeah, yeah, I know, you know what I mean. Where I'm like, how did you even come up with this? And he's kind of like, yeah, well, can Just we talk about nature. something? Else? Yeah, it's crazy. So he's got this intuition about his food and his flavors, but um, nah, he's been cool. We we knew we so we asked him for wine inspired bites, and. Uh, and then at one point he came back and he said, let me know if I get too chefy. And so, yeah, between, between, you know, the comfort of each of us going back and forth about what we wanted, uh, you know, it, it was pretty clear this is going to be an easy relationship and, oh man, he's been killing it. He's been absolutely killing it. Yeah. His food looks like his, it. I've been following it from on social media and it looks like just delicious food and people having a lot of fun out there. So you came to the market first with your CL Buto brand, and then you also have Papa Frenchie. CL Buto was the given name for my great grandfather. Uh, his name was Clet Louis Buto, and uh, but everybody knew him as Frenchie. If he came across somebody he didn't know, he'd introduce himself. Hey, I'm CL Buto, and then but from that point forward, then he was just Frenchie, and so and then to us kids, he was Papa Frenchie. So. 
He was born in 1900 in Abbeville, Louisiana. He moved to Beaumont in 1919 to work for Humble Oil, which became part of Exxon. He retired from Exxon in the 60s. I was born in 70. He was born in 94. And so I had about 23 or so years with him. And he was he was my superhero. He was he was the person I I looked up to and the the kind of person I wanted to be when I grew up. So uh, and he didn't drink at all. Um, I get asked that a lot. You know, he um, one of my one of my mom's cousins said, "Now now you know Frenchie was a teetotaler." I said, "Yeah yeah I know I know." But 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 Granny Granny held her own. Uh, she she was down uh, for you know a couple of bottles of Chardonnay every day, so um, she was getting it done. But um, yeah, you know just just to honor just to honor Frenchie, you know just uh, the influence he had on on my life and my mentality and the way that I approach people and uh, my work ethic and things like that. So just to honor him, yeah. So we call the second label Papa Frenchie for that reason, and then we put the. Uh, the, the icons on the back label show some of my memories of Frenchie, including his work boots. Uh, in his retirement, he was a welder for all the people in the neighborhood. You know, he built trailers and barbecue pits and things like that. His welding shop was the morning hangout for all the men in the neighborhood, you know, come over and drink coffee and shoot the breeze. And uh, so, yeah, his little Demitas coffee cup is on there and, uh, of course, a uh, 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 bluebell. You know, there's a thing of bluebell ice cream on the back because he had the deep freeze ice cream. You know, so hard that, that the kids couldn't get it. So he would. Uh, yeah. So we had the bluebell on the back and the deep freeze, and uh, you know, the, it was too hard for the kids to scoop. So he'd scoop out the, the ice cream, and then the nice. the sketch on the front is is actually is from a couple of pictures of Frenchie, but that sketch is done by a pop culture artist based in Manhattan named Dana Viraldi. And you could check her out at DearDana.com, D-E-E-R, like the the animal, DearDana.com, and you can see all of uh, what she's involved with. But um, that's another thrilling piece of our puzzle is is just having her do Frenchie sketch for our our lowly little Texas wine, you know. That's awesome. Well, I know that your Papa Frenchie would would be proud. I have two final questions for you. One is, what excites you about what you see going on in Texas wine? Ooh, you know the 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 increase in education, the um, the way that that people are focused. You know, with the growers, it's been a long, slow haul. Um, the growers have been there hasn't been enough fruit to satiate demand. Um, on the production side and really ultimately from the Texas consumer side. And with that, with that lack of, of raw material, they, they kind of have always had the, all the leverage and, and don't really care to move that process along. Well, you turn, you turn that fruit over to the production folks here in the state and the winemaking in the state is is really there's a boom going on in my mind there's uh people are really focusing on the science of it i mean really um you know 15 years ago it was it was tough it was tough to find you know a handful of wineries that that i could tell my colleagues from from other wine regions hey you can go here and taste these wines and they're all going to be excellent 
Uh, today, it's very easy to, to make that list, and it's because there's, there's, a, there's a new focus on the actual production of the wine. It's, it's less about the business of, of running a, a Texas winery and the, the business of selling out all my wines at the tasting room. It's, it's, it's less and less and less about that. And the more new people to our industry, the more they're, we're, we're focused on the science of the winemaking and how the winemaking, you know, how we could be proud of, of this thing that we make with our hands. To me, that's what's exciting about today. You know, the Texas sales are still through the roof. Uh, yeah, there's more tonnage planted in West Texas than there ever has been by a long shot. But, um, you know, that's still kind of a slow grind out there. Um, to me, what's exciting is, is, is what winemakers are doing at the wineries to make Texas wine better. And then the recognition that we're seeing for that outside of our Texas pride, our Texas industry. It's not about just us saying, yeah, we're great. It's now other people are starting to get it too. And, and that comes from the efforts from the folks in the, in the cellars, you know, getting it done. That's great. Yeah. Love it. That's some, that's the most important thing, right? That it's actually good. And then, <laughs> this is my last question. I know that you've said that you make rosé because your wife loves rosé, but what is your <laughs> desert island wine? You've mentioned a number of things you like to drink, but if you had to drink one thing forever, what would it be? Yeah, 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 yeah. It would probably be. It, it, yeah, it, it would probably. It's some form of rosé. It's. Um, I make rosé, let's see, let me think, let me think. My lightning rosé, I made in a style completely that I want to drink, and I made one of them, and, that's what, and I didn't release it too early. I didn't release it until September when it had developed and, and come into its own, and now it's ready to drink. I released my lightning rosé in September. Uh, it makes no business sense at all, um, but... I'm I'm a winemaker. What gets me up in the morning is that is that I produce this high end product that I love to drink and share. Here in Texas, I make two different rosés. The Papa Frenchy rosé is more that that spring release, that strawberry water type rosé, where it's you know rosé all day, whether you're at the pool or uh, at the lake or. Or just on a uh, you know on a meeting without a video, you know you you can you can drink this rosé anytime you like it. But but the the kind of rosé that that I would be stuck on an island with would be the kind of rosé that satisfies all year long. And by that I mean it is juicy, it is fresh, but it also uh, embraces some of the savory side of the varietals that that we make these wines from. And so. Um, you know, if my, if, if I have a rosé that has, uh, you know, some, someone has told me before this, this has, I I get prosciutto out of this. I'm like, cool. That's okay with me. I'm all right with that. You know, if my, if my rosé tastes like prosciutto and watermelon with some basil or something like, yeah, sweet. That's the rosé I want to drink all year long. Uh, yeah, I, 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 
I can drink. There's there. I I can I can eat bluebell homemade vanilla. I can eat pizza and I can drink rosé 365 days a year. Yeah, that sounds like a balanced diet to me. (laughs) (laughs) Easy. Well, I I always appreciate your. willingness to answer questions and go into detail about your winemaking and your wines and your your Tempranillo was actually one of the very first Texas wines that I tasted and thought oh I guess I do like Texas wine after all I have to tell you that and then also getting to meet you in person I guess it's been two years ago because the Facebook memory just popped up for me but two years ago you were in Fort Worth and we had a dinner outside on the patio at Grace, a wine dinner, Lightning Wines, and Ciel Buto. So that was great fun, and I hope that there are more of those in the future, and I'll look forward to getting down to your space in West Austin ASAP. Yes, for sure, for sure. No, it's been, it's been great to know you the last couple of years, and I appreciate you having me on. I'm stoked to see this uh, go in the way that, that you had hoped and uh, all the momentum that you're creating with it. Absolutely. Well, I'm delighted that we got to connect. And where can people connect with you on social media? Clbuto.com, uh, B-U-T-A-U-D, but also Instagram, Facebook. It's it's at Clbuto. Yeah, and of course, you know, we sell all the wines out of the tasting room. Uh, we are distributed through Serendipity, so we show you right on our website where you can find our wines locally. That list is updated. Every month when I get the reports back from the distributor. But yeah, if you are in Fort Worth or you're in Abilene or you're in Lubbock or you're in Beaumont, uh, you can look on the website and find your city and see where we sell our wines. It's going to be it's typically going to be restaurants. We're very little retail uh, out there. But, uh, you know, we do a lot here locally with uh, Salt and Thyme. And uh, a little bit with Central Market and a few other folks, but uh, yeah, it's it, we are. It's likely that if if there's a restaurant in your area that you like, we're we could be there. So just check the website, clbuto.com. Thanks, Randy. I'll be seeing you soon. Hopefully at the Wine and Food Foundation event next month, and definitely soon at your new tasting room. Here's a quick book review for you. This one would make a good gift. Dallas wine writer Andrew Chalk has released a new book called Texas Winery Dogs. Andrew said he emailed Texas winery owners to announce that he was putting this book together, and he received more replies about winery dogs than for any other email he's ever sent those folks. The book showcases dogs that live at Texas wineries and vineyards and is heavy on adorable photos. You can buy it for $29 at bookbaby.com. I'll link to it in the show notes. There are two ways to get in touch with me about the podcast. The first is email. I'm at texaswinepod at gmail.com, or you can leave me a voicemail at 802-585-1286. Maybe I'll share your comment or question on the show. And don't forget to follow the podcast at Texas Wine Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Remember, all of the show notes for this episode are at thisistexaswine.com. That's where you'll find the links to all the news stories I shared, links to get tickets to events, and more. 
While you're there, you can also sign up for the newsletter and click support the podcast tab. Again, it's thisistexaswine.com. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, why not do that now? That way you won't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Texas Wine Lover and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Texas Wine Lover is the website to visit whenever you have a question about a Texas winery or a Texas vineyard. That web address is txwinelover.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. I'll be back soon with another episode. Cheers, y'all.